Gary Edmonds is an Illinois-based self-storage owner, operator, and manager who bought his first facility back in 1999 while holding down a full-time job. Since then, he's acquired 14 facilities, totaling 1,800 units and over 280,000 square feet of storage space. And almost all of those facilities were acquired and run remotely while Gary had a career as a State Farm insurance agent. In this episode, we talked to Gary about buying that first facility, how a previous career in commercial lending helped prepare him for the storage business, how he has managed all of his facilities remotely without a manager on site, and the mistakes he made acquiring his second facility. I'm Neil Henderson, and this is The Road to Family Freedom. Before we get to this week's show, we'd like to make you aware of something. We are self-storage investors. We buy existing self-storage facilities and vacant buildings that can be converted to self-storage in the Sun Belt. We buy them with cash and some with loans, and we use private lenders who become equity partners in our deals. These equity partners share in the cash flow and the profits when we sell. When we find a deal that we are considering, we call the equity partners and offer them a share of the ownership secured by the property. So if you've ever driven by a self-storage facility and thought, I wonder who owns those things, and you have any interest in learning more about the storage business, we'd love to chat with you. Head on over to roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash storage. That's roadtofamilyfreedom.com slash s T-O-R-A-G-E and set up a time to chat. We look forward to speaking with you. All right, enough out of us. Let's hit the road to family freedom. Well, Gary Edmonds, welcome to the road to family freedom. Glad to be here, Neil. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, We have been sort of traveling in the same circles for uh, for a couple of years now we've actually if we have met uh, it was only in passing but it's uh, pleased to pleased to make your acquaintance well it's good to finally chat with you and yeah. uh, get a chance to exchange a little more information yeah uh, well we're, we're talking about one of my favorite subjects today which is self-storage but before we get into storage uh, you recently retired after a 20-year career as a state farm agent and before that you were in commercial, and agricultural lending. Can you talk about some of the ways that your experiences in your previous careers prepared you for storage, if it did at all? It absolutely did. The, the couple of years that I spent in lending allow me now to be able to see things from that perspective. And uh, obviously things have changed in the last 20 plus years, but I still go into a, into a loan negotiation with the background of knowing what's important to the bank. Anytime you're negotiating anything or talking to anybody, you know, if you don't know where they're coming from or what their priority is or what they're looking for, uh, you're not going to get very, very far along. So uh, I think it gives me a, not an edge, but just a, an understanding of knowing that I've got to meet certain arrangements because I know the bank is looking at it from this standpoint and those are the things that are important to them. So if I'm not meeting those, then really nothing else is going to, you know, we're not going to progress. So the lending was certainly valuable. My time in the insurance world, um, you know, 20 years of working with the customer, you know, the customer is not always right. We all know that, but there is, uh, you know, there is a skill and, and, a, and a way to, to move on and both sides be wrong, but yet not mad at each other. You know, insurance is no different than retail or, or anywhere else. Um, you know, as a business owner, there's just certain things you can't bend on and there's some things you can and, and learning that line and just, you know, again, learning what's in, what's a client coming for, what, what are they looking for? And, uh, you know, but I, 
I learned a tremendous amount in that experience, um, but I was very happy to uh, to retire from that too and, and to move on to full-time storage. The easiest ways that I have to negotiate with a potential seller when they're being a little recalcitrant about the price or the information that they want to give me is I use the, I use the bank as the boogeyman. Mm-hmm. You know, you just say, listen, if, if I'm going to buy this, I'm going to have to get a loan uh, unless you're just going to give it to me. And the bank is going to want to see this and this and this. And you're telling me you're making, you know, $100,000 a year, but on paper, you're only showing $40,000 a year. The bank's going to ask to see all that. And they're going to want to actually see proof, not just your word. And that always, you know, it's a tough conversation, but sometimes it's, it's one of the ways that you can sort of, you know, not be the bad guy. Mm -hmm. So you talked about what's important to the bank. So can you sort of, you know, talk to us about when you're, when you're looking at a storage facility, what is the bank really care about? What are they looking for? Besides you personally, and, and, you know, you have to, uh, you know, you have to sell yourself no different than, than anything else. But after that, you know, at least when I started, you know, it was all about the collateral. You know, if, if something happens to you and you disappear, what's the bank still holding? And cash flow and everything else is great. But in the end, you know, what do they have a loan on? And they have, you know, in the storage world, they've got obviously a mortgage. And, you know, that instantly makes banks feel better than if it's rolling stock. You know, if, if you come in and you go, yeah, I'm going to go into the trucking business and I'm going to have trucks all over the country and the bank's going, whoa, no. But the, you know, the storage building, it can't move. It can't, can't leave. So, you know, first and foremost, you, know, you got to make them happy with what they're going to have that lean on. Beyond that, all the little stuff, uh, you know, absolutely they want to cash flow. Um, but, you know, that's one of the advantages of storage, too, is we've got a good track record now going back 30 years. And, uh, you know, so banks are a little more, oh, yeah, yeah, we're familiar with that. And, and uh, you know, they probably wouldn't dig into that quite so deep as if you said, hey, I got this new tech company I want to start up and it's going to be wonderful. Uh, you can have a loan on all of our computers. So, you know, you start into it just, you know, making sure that they're going to be, you know, the bank's going to be able to check the boxes and go, OK, yeah, we're secure. You know, we've got a good borrower and the industry is stable. When you can get those three things checked off, then they're going to be a little easier to work with on some other things. And, you know, and I really need a little bit longer amortization. You go back to, they got a great mortgage, you know, they got good cash flow and they go, okay, you know, we can stretch that out maybe another year or two. Cause, cause in the end, you know, things like amortization don't really cost the bank anything. I mean, they're worried about, you know, the buildings depreciating, but it doesn't cost them anything. Whereas not having collateral that costs them. Yeah. So, well, at the end of the day, the bank doesn't want to be in the self storage business. Hmm. So they don't want to, they don't want to take over your storage facility. What they want is to know that they've got an asset that they're going to be able to collateralize if, if things go South and, and it really comes down to basically how much money is it making? So tell us about that first facility that you bought back in 1999. Well, I, I tell people jokingly, I say divorce is the best thing that's ever happened to me in the storage business. <laughs> it wasn't my divorce, thankfully. Uh, it, was, it was somebody else's divorce. And, uh, you know, they were having to, to liquidate uh, some of their holdings. And, and uh, at the time, I'd, I'd been in the residential market like so many people are. Um, I'd been in the residential market and was tired of that. Uh, when Dwayne came up to me and said, hey, do you have an interest in my storage facility? I said, yes. And uh, we proceeded to buy it. 
Um, it was actually two facilities, one of which had a car wash attached to it. And we bought them. And about a year later, I sold the facility with the car wash because I learned that that is not in my, in my skill set. And uh, car washes in the Midwest freeze. And then they thaw. And then you have water everywhere. And I, it only took one winter for me to learn that lesson. So uh, sold that one, sold that part off though. And, and I, uh, I kept the other ones. Uh, we've added several buildings over the year. I still own that facility. It's taught me a tremendous amount about the storage business. You know, it's allowed me to to see things. You know, see revenue trends and see expense trends, and uh, you know, it, it's almost my textbook uh, example for so many of the things that we try and do with with our storage business uh, because it's worked there for twenty years. What size was the facility? The one that we still own, I think it was about one hundred and ten units, and the other one was, I believe, thirty two units. So we sold off the thirty two, and and we've expanded to one ten. I think we're up to one seventy on that one now. Gotcha. So you still own that original, that first mm-hmm. facility. Gotcha. Sure and do. So you found it in, you found it from a divorce. Did you, was it direct marketing? Did you get it from a broker? No, direct from the seller. He contacted me cause he, he knew we were looking to invest and grow our business. And uh, I was still at the bank direct from him to me. Do you remember what the square footage was at the time? I'm sorry. I don't. Okay. <laughs> 110, that, that sounds like about 20,000 square foot facility, about that? Probably about that. Okay. The, was it, and it obviously had room to grow because you were able to expand mm-hmm. it to 170 units. And then what was the purchase price? 420, maybe. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm making- That's making a long time, back. Neil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's, a lot it's been a lot of deals since <laughs> yeah, then. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. And, and, I'm, and I'm not a great number person no, anyway. it's fine. <laughs> Do you recall how you financed it? Yes. Um, came up with 10% cash and uh, came up with 15% on credit cards. And uh, that's, that's how it rolled. So you were able, so you, so the bank allowed you to use money from credit cards or did you use that? Okay. Wow. I'm not sure many banks would do that these days. (laughs) Probably not. Uh, so you had to come with about 25% down, but only 10% of it in cash. Mm-hmm. So about 40, a little over $40,000. Yes. And was there much uh, deferred maintenance on the place? Was it stabilized? What kind of work did it need? It was, it was honestly in, in very good shape. And, uh, you know, we just took over day one and it was immediately cash flowing. And, and uh, you know, I like to think I bought it pretty well, but I think he did well too. It just, yeah. you know, it was a nice, stable running business. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, I mean, that's a great position for a, a newcomer to be in. We're often as newcomers looking for those extreme value adds, you know, where we can, we can take over a facility. Uh, I've got a friend, uh, Mike Wagner, who bought a facility that I called, we called the zombie apocalypse. It was literally a facility not far out of Charlotte, uh, but out in the r- a rural area that had been built and then had been left abandoned for mm at least 10 years and it had, and, oh. and literally trees were growing in the gravel. I mean, you could barely see the facility if you were standing next to it. He and I both found it about the same time, but he's, he was much more experienced. I was like, I'm not touching that. I'm <laughs> all the way across the country. <laughs> I'm not going to tackle that. Cause he had, he had had, uh, he had owned several facilities before. So there is something to be said for, for just buying something that's, you're going to be able to learn and not lose your shirt. And, uh, 
that still, you know, it still had room to grow. So what tired you out about the residential side of real estate? Uh, you know, it's the same thing everybody talks about. We've all had the nightmare stories about, you know, the tenants and, and the trash and, and, and the toilets to, to use the phrase, but you know, there's, there's so much risk with the residential market for so little gain in, in, in my opinion, you know, so many things can go wrong and, you know, whatever margin you've got between your, your anticipated expenses and your rent. It, it's still, it's one blown water heater or, you know, one little uh, insurance claim or, or whatever from eating away your, your entire year's profit. And you're basing everything on the one tenant. And, and you know, I've worked with a lot of people from a, from a, a counseling standpoint and they go into this and, you know, everybody, it seems like everybody entering the, the residential rental market just assumes a hundred percent, you know, occupancy. You know, oh, well, this is a great house. I'm not going to charge that much. I'm going to get 12 months rent. No, you're not. You know, it's nice to think that, but odds are you're not. And and whether it's 10 months or 11 months out of the year, you just got to plan for that because between tenants, there's downtime. And, 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 you know, I know there are people with better stories than mine, but that's that was my experience. And that's been the experience of so many people that that try to get into the residential market as a way to well. Uh, and, and it is a way. It's not my way. It's a hard way, but uh, but it taught me a lot. And uh, you know, I, I appreciated everything I learned. And uh, it was a much less expensive way to get in a start into real estate. Bought my first piece of real estate. It was a fourplex, and I I remember this one. I bought it for twenty four thousand dollars, and uh, I, I can't remember if it was ninety three or ninety four. You know, you don't get much for twenty four thousand, even back in the nineties, and it was not much. And we had we had four tenants, and I I still can picture each and every one of those four. And uh, you know, I learned a, just just learned a tremendous amount about the real estate business. I learned a fair amount about construction, although I had a pretty good background in it. But uh, it was it was an interesting couple of years that we owned that property. All right. Well, interesting. You say interesting, and now I have to hear at least one story. It was a, a nice couple, and, and right after we bought it, they said, "You know, would you would you mind if we painted, you know, one of the rooms, you know, and and you know, we'll pay for the paint and everything." And you know, I'm thinking the business owner, I'm thinking, "Yeah, great, paint the room." And they bought they they, they painted it the most vivid Christmas red. I mean, it was it was just blaring. And I don't even remember how many coats of paint it took me to cover it up when they moved out because, you know, not everybody wants a bright red bedroom. Did I mention yeah. the bedroom part? <laughs> uh, not everybody wants a, a bright red Christmas ornament bedroom. And, uh, you know, so that was one of those lessons that went from Gary, you know, you still need to exercise control, even though the tenant wants to pay for it. It's still your building and you, you need to pay attention and, and be a part of their decision. I, you know, that was one minor lesson, but we certainly did learn a lesson from it. And, and it's one I can laugh about 26, seven years later. Yeah. Well, and, and now, you know, you, there's not many tenants that are asking you if they can repaint the inside of their self-storage unit. Are there? No, 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 gotcha. no. And that, you know, if there's one, if there's one thing I can say about self-storage, it, it's not easy, but it is simple. There just aren't that many moving parts and you don't have you know, you don't have water heaters and you don't have drain lines and you don't have furnace. I mean, well, with the exception of 
class A, you know, climate control facilities, but by and large, my, my drive up facilities and that, you know, it's, you just don't have that many complications. And, you know, that's one reason why it is just such an attractive uh, environment for me to invest in is because it's just, there's only so many things that you have to try and control in order to, to make your business plan work. What are the hard parts? You know, you, you said, you said it's, it's simple, but you know, there, there are some hard parts. What would you say are some of the hardest parts of being a, a storage owner? You know, there, you are dealing with people and, uh, you know, there are people that, that you learn and, and you get to know and you do feel sorry for and for whatever reason. And, and, uh, you know, that's, that's sometimes not a great part of the business when you've got to make business decisions for yourself and they do impact your tenants that you may have known for two, three or five years. Um, but that's not your problem. Um, you know, it, it's your business. It's not, you know, their problems are not yours. You know, they're, I'd like to come up with a whole list of problems, but you know, they're gates, gates are my evil. <laughs> uh, Cause they can cause, uh, you know, they, they would probably cause the Catholic Pope to use bad words some days <laughs> and, and technology in general, you know, just tr- getting everything to, to sync up and, and especially at remote facilities where you don't have a, a staff and an experienced person sitting around 40 hours a week you know, gates can be a little more frustrating. Uh, any, any technology kiosk can be more frustrating. Uh, but again, those are, those are minor, you know, in comparison to the, to the residential world where, you know, the police can call you at two o'clock in the morning and say, Hey, we just took down one of your doors. You might want to fix that. Um, yeah. uh, or, or anything in that world. Well, and there's more laws. I mean, a tenant's going to be pissed off if they can't access their, their stuff on a day because the gate's broken and they can't get a hold of somebody, but a tenant who's got their heat out or their door knocked off or a window broken, or, you know, they aren't going to, they're going to wait. They're going to be patient a couple of days for, to have that fix. It's going to be fix it now. And, and there are laws about certain things that, you know, uh, you could get in a lot of trouble as a landlord <laughs> if they, you know, if you don't fix it immediately. So, but like you said, at the end of the day, it still is, uh, there, there is, there are people involved mm-hmm. and people are unpredictable <laughs> to say the least. Yes, they are. So, so that was your first facility was, you bought that in 1999, correct? Mm-hmm. And here we are in 2020, God rest us. And you're now at how many facilities? Uh, we own 15. Okay. Um, and uh, about how many units? Uh, about 1800 units, 1800 units. Do you have, do you know what your total square footage across your total, your whole portfolio is? I want to say it's around 280,000, but I won't, I won't hold you to it. (laughs) Good. (laughs) So, uh, how long after you bought that first facility, did you buy your second? Probably trying to remember because I don't have that one anymore. Probably six or seven years. Uh, because right about the same time we bought the first one, you know, we went to State Farm and that took a lot of, that took a lot of time to, to learn and grow into that business. So I kind of took a little bit of a hiatus from storage, uh, but then bought the second one. And, uh, you know, that was one of the biggest, biggest mistakes I've ever made because I went into that and didn't do all the due diligence I should because it was storage. Storage is great. And uh, unfortunately, the storage building came with an apartment building. 
And I lost more on that apartment building than I could have ever made on the storage businesses. Wow. So, um, you know, we sold it a couple of years later and moved on, but, uh, um, it was a mistake, but I learned a lot from it and I don't hope to ever repeat those lessons, but, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's a part of life is you make mistakes and you got to drive on. What, what would you say was your biggest mistake on that one? You said due diligence. Yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't dig into the apartment building near enough. Uh, there were eight units and, you know, bought into a lot of that. Well, there's a lot of cash exchanged and this and that. And, uh, I didn't get enough proof and, uh, there wasn't enough cash being exchanged for it to be a good deal. And it was in a lot worse repair and it was located 200 miles away from me. So they weren't, they weren't repairs that I could make. And, and when I started out, everything was close and, uh, you know, I could do everything. I could fix everything. And then, yeah. then I moved and I bought this building and it was far enough away that I'm paying somebody else to fix things. And it, it just, it, it, you know, you can never renegotiate a purchase price and uh, I paid too much for it. And uh, that's completely on me. Uh, you know, I showed the bank a lot of the same paperwork that they showed me and they said, okay, yeah, you put some cash down and you sign at the bottom of the line and we're good. They were made good. It was, it was my wife and I that uh, struggled for a while to get back out of that hole. But uh, again, just another reminder that I am not, my, my wife does not ever want me to buy anything that's got water attached to it um, because those apartments leaked. I mean, you know, plumbing old leak, you know, and uh, so that's one of our, uh, that's one of our underwriting standards is no water allowed on the premises. As long as I abide by that, my wife is a lot happier. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. It, yes, sir. Very much so. <laughs> I have to remind myself that frequently. Mm -hmm. So, so you, you bought that second one about six or seven years after that first one. So that now we're talking mm -hmm. 2006 and now we we're getting into the era of, you know, of the great recession. When did you, when did you acquire most of your facilities? I've done most of my growth in the last uh, six, seven years. I bought uh, the biggest facility that I was talking about. I actually went and inspected that. Um, it was the morning of, uh, it was a, a beautiful, sunny June morning in 2014. I know it was a beautiful day because it was the day my oldest daughter got married. And I spent about an hour and a half that morning inspecting this facility. Wow. Um, because, you know, there's not much for dads to do anyway. It's and, true. Uh, you know, it was a couple miles away from the, where everything was being done for the wedding. So I just took off for an hour and a half and not everybody can say they spent the morning of their daughter's wedding and <laughs> storage buildings, but, yeah. uh, but I did. And, uh, you know, we proceeded to, to purchase that a few months later and, uh, you know, we've added, we've been growing purposely the last, last half dozen years. And how have you, how have you been finding most of these facilities? Have you, are you, do you have any sort of direct marketing? You've just built relationships with brokers. Give us the goods, little, Gary. A little bit of everything. Um, that facility in Peoria was through a broker. We bought a portfolio in, in Western Illinois that was through a broker. One of our recent facilities, we just, you know, somebody else ran across it and it didn't fit their, their investment model. So they reached out to me because they knew it, it probably did. Uh, well, and that's been a couple facilities recently that friends, family, I think you've had Fernando Angelucci on your podcast before. Fernando's directed a couple our way, just didn't fit his 
his portfolio. So a little bit of everything. I do absolutely no direct marketing. Um, I keep thinking as I'm driving around the country, I see some, some, you know, some nice looking remote facilities. And I keep thinking, you know, you just ought to stop by and, and the time doesn't, you know, that's a, that's a cop out, but uh, yeah. I, I know I don't do anything to market to, to find more storage facilities. Wow. So they, they're mostly just coming to you at this point. Yes. Okay. But you've got, you still have a network of people who are out there. You know, I know Fernando is, is a direct marketing machine. So, um, so there's certainly a benefit there. Although I still have a, I have a bit of a bone to pick with Fernando. I keep asking him, am I on your buyers list? And he goes, Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he goes, he goes, he goes, where are you looking? And I go North and South Carolina. And then it gets really quiet. <laughs> and I start to realize that Fernando's looking at this. Fernando is keeping all the ones he's finding in North and South Carolina. So <laughs> it's all good, Fernando, to, if you're it, listening. <laughs> you just, uh, you need to find less desirable parts of the country. And then he's, then he's great. <laughs> exactly. To- yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so what are the, some of the challenges? Most of your facilities are there in Illinois. Yes. All, like all of all in the state of Illinois. Well, we extend from Peoria down to about the St. Louis level. Okay. So a good portion of the state, about half the state from top to bottom. Now, having been somebody who's looked in Illinois, I've looked at facilities in Illinois. um, One of the things that scares me about there is the the taxes. It's a, it's, it's not a low tax state. And one of the biggest things that it was not, I don't really, I don't have a problem with taxes. And if you know, going in, it's really not that big of a deal. But one of the challenges that I ran up against was that each township in Illinois ha- can have its own taxes when it comes to commercial real estate. Can you talk about some of the ways that you have either mitigated that or just learned to live with it? I have no pleasant things to say about real estate taxes. <laughs> <laughs> not many people do. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a cost of doing business and, and, you know, it's, it's one that is associated with Illinois, but we bought a piece of property in Georgia last year, a storage facility, and the insurance is three times what any facility in Illinois I have. So, you know, cheaper taxes, higher insurance, you know, it's just the cost of doing business. If you underwrite it going in and, you know, there's no magic tricks, you're not going to go in and, and talk anybody in any elected official these days into lowering their taxes. Yeah. Uh, you just, you know, you, you underwrite the heck out of it and say, okay, can I live with this? Yeah. And uh, if you can, you can, if not, you, you invest somewhere else, but uh, it, it's not like every other state is, is a bonanza either. Um, you know, every state has its challenges except for North and South Carolina, of course, where, where you and Fernando want to buy all the facilities. Uh, but it, you know, that's, that's just, uh, you know, one thing is you might be able to find a better deal in, in a state that's got a bad reputation than you can in North Carolina. That's true. Um, so it's, it's all in, in the, you know, where you're looking to, to, to find your peace. Yeah. So one of the challenges, I mean, when you're underwriting, often you don't, necessarily know. Um, I mean, you, you'll, you're buying a facility that was built in, you know, built 20 years ago for $500,000. And, you know, it can be a real challenge finding out from whoever the tax authority is, whether or not it's the county, the municipality, the township or the state, what that new tax bill is going to look like. Um, do you have any, any tips for someone who's trying to sort of figure that out as they're underwriting? Um, on how to how to 
figure out what that's going to be when they're underwriting? I, I'm not the best underwriter. Um, I still, you can't see it on the video, but I have a gut and uh, I, I rely a lot on my gut. Um, and, and that's sad to say in today's world, but there's just so many things you can't plan for or anticipate. Um, and, and I think part of the background in banking was that way because, you know, you'd see people come through and they'd have spent hours creating, you know, their business plan. And so you throw one little hookup at it and it's like, oh, I didn't think about that. Uh, you know, there is no, there is an never ending list of things that can happen. And, uh, you know, people talk about, you know, cap rates and debt service coverage ratio and everything. And well, you know, eight's good, but you know, 7.8 ah, or, or vice versa. I, you know, it, it's got, the numbers have to look good, but I don't dive into them to the point of, you know, excessive anal retentive behavior and just, you know, um, because things are going to happen. You know, uh, I gave the example the other day, you know, uh, you know, a car slides on the snow, hits the side of your building and you don't have cameras in that section. Where's your cash flow got that? Where's your budget got that? You know, it doesn't. And, and, and if you've got a facility with a hundred thousand revenue a year, and that's a you know $2,000 repair, what just happened? You know, where'd your expense ratios go? Where's your cap rate at now? And, and those things happen, you know, I'm, I'm not every day, obviously, but I do some underwriting, obviously, you know, you, you got to look into it and, and, and run the numbers, but I try to not go back and, and rerun them and rerun them and rerun them with different scenarios. And it's just, it's mostly gut feeling. And, and thankfully after 20 years, I've got a little more experience than, than not. And, and that helps quite a bit. Yeah. Well, but, what you're also talking about is is a little bit of analysis, analysis paralysis. Absolutely. I'm guilty of it as well. Uh, of you just you dig and you dig and you dig and you just think, you know, okay, if I just know, if I just know every number that I think I can know, it's going to be okay. That will take away the fear of of what it whatever it is, and and that's especially true when somebody's never owned a facility. As you start to to buy facilities and you start to experience the things that can go wrong and that they're not the end of the world, then you, you sort of discover that, you know, my gut is probably mostly okay. Mostly. And, uh, you know, there's also something to be said for, uh, uh, and it's, it's something I use with my team quite a bit and it's perfection is the enemy of production. And, uh, perfect is the enemy of good. Yeah. Or perfect I, is I the enemy of done. Uh, yeah, it, it, it to me, it's more important to do something and do it wrong than it is to plan it out perfectly, but never even start it. And we do not run perfect facilities. And uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, but, uh, you know, there, there's just, you know, you can't be out there spraying the weeds every day in, in, in your gravel driveway. And I mean, you, it, you just, yeah, it'd look perfect, but nobody cares. And, uh, you know, you get back to the numbers. And you got to make the numbers work every day. A lot of the conceptions of storage, uh, you know, we don't have, we don't have social media at, at any of our facilities. Um, you know, we do very little marketing. Um, and, and those are all things that are wrong if, if you read the experts and, and read everybody in the industry. But, you know, I've got a facility over 90% occupancy. Well, the, the first one I bought, it, it's been over 96% all year. And I believe if I remember correctly, I spent $50 this year on marketing. That's because a friend of mine work is in the rotary in that area and they do a rotary, you know, thing. And I put a little money in the book, but that's it. It's not the way the book tells you to run a storage building, mm. but, uh, 
you know, if you can keep your occupancy up that high with fairly high rates and only spend that on, uh, there's no website, there's no social media, there's no, there's nothing. You know, I'll take that all day long. Not perfect, but it's producing. So you don't, you don't have websites for any of your facilities? No, most of them, we have a website. Okay. Uh, That one in particular, we just don't have anything. Oh, gotcha. We've got websites most everywhere. Gotcha. So you're at 15 facilities now, 1800 units over 280,000 square feet. How many, how many onsite managers do you have at your facilities? We have one facility that we have a whole bunch of people at. Every facility we run is, is run under a remote philosophy. Um, but we do have a central office that happens to have some storage units by it. So we, we have all of our employees at, at one location pretty well. And they're answering the phone for, you know, every facility that we own, uh, as well as the ones that we've taken on under management. And, uh, so we're, we're running every facility with, with no employee presence in the area. What are some of the, what are some of the challenges of, of managing in, in that way? Well, I think part of it extends to the expectation that you have to set with the customer. You know, it's common, uh, you know, a customer gets behind, you overlock their facility and the customer makes their payment and then they want into their facility instantly. Sorry, you know, if you wanted in today, you should have made your payment last week when it was due, you know, or the week before, or whatever, you know, and it's setting that expectation at the onset when they call in and they rent, take care of everything. You mentioned that, you know, you've got somebody locally that, you know, it takes care of the facility and everything, but you know, all your, all your activity will have to be through us. And there's a, a normal delay. If, if you need something, you know, repaired on your unit or something, most people don't care. They just want to rent a spot and put their stuff in it and forget it. You know, we're not a, a five-star Michelin restaurant that has to offer, you know, three people standing around the table waiting for you to drop your napkin. It's a simple business. You know, people just want basically a garage. They want to put their stuff in it and they want to leave. That's, that's really what we do. And, and, and obviously there's other people, you know, we've got commercial tenants. Uh, you know, we used to have a, a, a great relationship with Frito-Lay uh, where they'd rent facilities from us and drop their stuff for their local route drivers and that type of thing. So, you know, you got people that are in and out often, but most people, you know, there's a lot of people that don't go to their storage unit once a year and they keep yeah. it year after year after year. Uh, they don't need that that level of service that's required by having somebody there 40 hours a week. And then, and then you think about the hassles, the hassle is having somebody at a facility 40 hours a week uh, doing solitaire on their computer, talking to their spouse and their kids and their mom and their dad and doing everything, but taking care of your business. To me, there's a lot more risk with that than there is, you know, there's, I'm not going to lose many tenants because I don't have somebody on site. Well, and it comes down, like you said, it comes down to managing customer expectation. And probably training them a little bit, especially if you take over a new facility. Have you have you taken over any new facilities that had an on-site manager and then made it completely remote? Yes, um, the last one we did uh, in Georgia was that way, and uh, you know it was a little bit of adjustment. But you know, after about a month, nobody really cares. I mean, they miss seeing such and such when they go in to make their payment. But what you, what was that to me? Um, you know, it it. it was not a, a financial miss. You know, they still pay the same amount of rent. You do transition them into on, an online payment ACH system? We certainly try. You know, we still allow everybody to mail payment in. Uh, so we, we get payments mailed from Georgia um, and in most of our facilities. Uh, we do not require credit card or ACH payment, although we are looking at that, as is everybody. 
it's a very quick transition. You'd be surprised how easily people adapt. Uh, I, I bought a facility from a from an older gentleman, and we bought it. It was about seventy percent occupied. He had somebody working part time, and he found out we weren't going to have anybody in the area. Oh, you can't do that. These people want to see somebody. You know, six months later, we were at ninety six percent, and you know, because we had somebody answering the phone all the time. You know, we answer the phone. Uh, central time from eight in the morning till seven at night and people would rather you answer the phone all the time than they they would you show up for 20 hours out of the week and uh, so uh you know our occupancy or our, our occupancy went way up there with the remote style management as opposed to the half management that that they previously had and, and that's you know you think about staffing some of these smaller facilities and and you know i go by some of them and They'll have their hours posted and it'll be Monday from 8.30 to 11 and then Tuesday from 2 to 5 and Wednesday, uh, you know, 11 to 1. And you think, you know, they're staffing an office solely for the existing customer. Because if you're a new customer, there's no way you're going to figure out that schedule. Yep. So, you know, you're, you're basically paying somebody to sit there and wait for somebody to make a payment. You're paying for not a manager, you're paying for a, a checkout person. That's just something that doesn't fit our business plan. Uh, there's too many other ways that people want to make payments, especially now, you know, in COVID times have taught us so much that people don't need a place to drop a payment or drop a check off. You know, they don't want to do that. They, they want to do credit card, ACH, you know, if anything, the 2020 has been good in that respect in, in the, the remote management world. And so you have, you got 15 of your own facilities that you're doing remote management on, but you said you've recently taken over up to three facilities that you're, you're managing for some, for another owner. We launched uh, the storage manager is a new business that we launched this fall. Uh, we brought on three facilities earlier in December and we've got another one coming on board tomorrow and we've got four lined up for January already. We have a, a fair amount of experience in this area and uh, we decided that it was time to start offering those services and, uh, you know, it was honestly, it was, it was all my wife's idea. She said, you know, you, you guys got this all figured out, you and your team, why don't you do this for other people? Wow. That's a really good idea. So uh, we started promoting that a little bit in October and uh, interest has been very good so far. And we're, we're excited about that. We, you know, those four facilities are another you know, 475 units coming on this month and similar schedule for January already. So, uh, you know, clearly there's a, a market for us to provide these services. You know, I know what a typical, for somebody who doesn't really understand how self-storage management works, what does a self-storage manager typically uh, charge? How are, how are you making money? We're all assuming we're going to make money. It's, it's how, month I, one. How, yeah, it's yeah. month one, Neil. Come <laughs> on. Uh, but, fair, you fair know, point. Fair point. We are working off a percentage and, uh, you know, the percentage changes a little bit depending on the size and, and just as a, as an idea, you know, probably most facilities under a hundred thousand in, in gross revenue are probably going to be a little small to be looked at. You know, we're probably needing something a hundred, hundred unit plus, uh, yeah. in order to justify our services. You know, we're in that range, you know, five or 6% typically, um, plus our call center, uh, which is an extra expense. And, uh, that's the range. And, and, you know, different, different services are available that can change that. You know, we can provide all of the accounting services. So it's a complete turnkey. Uh, you know, you buy the facility and, and you give us the keys and uh, we essentially cut you a check at the end of the month. Or, you know, if you want to be involved, if you want to take care of all the, 
the the marketing and the, the website and all that that's fine with us um, you know we'll we'll focus on on just you know creating the revenue and a little bit still you know we, we want to do what what the client's asking for and and uh, we'll see how that works out gotcha uh, and do you have any kind of a goal of of how many facilities you want to onboard in the next year well when we sat down in october we thought boy you know if we had if we put on 10 by the end of 2021 that'd be doing pretty good and uh, we're going to be at eight by the end of January. So I think 10 is probably within reach. Um, Definitely. Yeah. You know, I, I want to be a little bit careful. You know, we, we got to do this thing right too. I would say somewhere if we can get in that 15 to 16 ballpark by the end of the year and doing them right and doing them well, um, I'll be very happy. Gotcha. So I want to sort of get back to some of the basics um, that we often talk about. We often talk about, we already talked about the amount of money it took you to get started but knowledge wise, what did you need to learn how to do in order to be successful with that first facility that you recall? I'm asking you to reach way back. You know, and, and I don't know how closely it relates to just storage, but philosophically, I guess, what it takes to be successful if if you do something kind of like I've done where you've had the regular job, but you're wanting to to get ahead. You know, one of the most critical things is to uh, eliminate the last hundred years of American history and, and forget about the 40 hour work week and, and the, the 48 hour work week. And, and you got to be committed to making a success of your business. And, uh, you know, Neil, I, I talk to a lot of people and, and I work as a, as a volunteer with SCORE, which is an organization to, to help people get into business and to grow their business. And, and so many people have a dream, you know, everybody's got a dream. There's a lot of difference between a dream and a business. And, you know, if you want to make it work, you got to remember that there's going to be the occasional thing that your friends get to do that you don't get to. And maybe that's watching a baseball game every night, or maybe that's, uh, you know, going to every one of your, your child's uh, baseball practices. Uh, you know, some of those things you're going to have to miss if you want to be, if you want to make a small business a success. And uh, it's not that it takes an extra 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week, but it takes some extra time to get ahead of this. And, and that was the thing that I, I was able to do the first few months of the storage world was I was able to go to the facility every day and just see what happened, see what went on that day. Um, you know, look at the facility and, and get a feel for what goes on every day in that world. Cause there's not a lot, but, but you just learn the flow and, and you, uh, you realize that things happen a lot more at certain times of the month and certain times of the year. And, you know, just learning all that by spending that little bit of time every day though. Um, you know, it's, it's not like most sidelines. It's not something that you can just cram into a Saturday and, uh, okay, I'm going to work 10 hours on Saturday and then come Monday, I'm back to my eight to five job. You know, you're going to lose some TV time or maybe you watch TV, but you got your computer in front of you running through those those notes that you took on the facility that you visited last week. And just, you're trying to write up and it just, you know, you got to create that time. And uh, that was probably I don't know if it directly relates to storage, but it certainly directly relates to whatever success I've had. You know, it's um, like you said, everybody's got a dream. And, you know, even whether it's, uh, you know, they want to lose 20 pounds and, and mm -hmm. gain, you know, 
of muscle mass. You're not going to get that from, from busting your butt 10 hours a month on one day. It's going to take a lot of, a lot of little sacrifice or mm-hmm. a lot of big sacrifice, but it takes, it's going to take consistency. Um, it's not something you're going to just, you know, like you said, where it's like, all right, eight to five, I'm, I'm committed to my, my day job. And then, you know, on weekends, I'm going to spend 10 hours, you know, knocking this out and and that's going to get me to my goal. It's much more, like you said, I think consistency and persistence is going to be more of what it's about than anything else. You know, it gets back to what do you want in life? You know, do, do you want to be able to retire at the age of 52? And not that I'm patting myself on the back because I'm working harder now than I ever did before, I think. But, you know, I've, I've got the freedom. Everybody talk about being a small business owner and having freedom. Well, I've got that. You know, I'm, I'm able to work my own schedule, but I'm still working. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably not working quite 80 hours a week anymore, but, you know, well over 60 most of the time. But it is my schedule and it's it's a, you know, I'm able to take off whatever day I want, whenever I want. And, you know, my people are still covering all the day to day activity. But, uh, you know, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to I didn't want to have to work until I was 65 or 70 for somebody else. I wanted a little freedom earlier in my life. And, um, you know, so you got to you got to set yourself and, and you know analyze what you really want. And if what you really want is to uh, watch every single minute of your child's life, then you're probably not going to need a sideline business. Uh, you're probably not going to be, you know, following the same path that, that a lot of the rest of us do. I did not miss many of my children's events, but I did not make all their practices and all their, you know, you know, you got to pick and choose. And uh, that's, I, I, you know, you, you got to figure out what you want and then find that path to it. And, and you mentioned the, the weight loss. And it's that time of year where we all start looking at our new year's resolutions going, yes, I want to do this, you know, because I want to lose 20 pounds and, you know, improve the muscle mass and everything. But I also know I'm probably not going to, but I want to buy two facilities next year. And that'll probably happen because I am, you know, that is something that is, is not a one it's, it's on my list. I'm going to do that one. Um, So you you just got to find, you know, what you truly want and what's a dream. And the two aren't necessarily the same thing yeah. and uh, pursue it that way. The amazing thing about your story, and we're only just tapping on this right now, which is that you acquired 15 facilities all while working a full-time job, correct? 13 of them. I've put on, I've added two cents, but yes. So how much time would you say you were having to devote to just your storage business during that period? How many hours a week? Oh, some weeks. 15 or 20, some weeks, 40 to 50, you know, we, we think about our, our American work week and this whole 40 hour work week thing, you know, that leaves an awful lot of time. Oh, well, you know, I, I'm so busy. I can't do that. What are you busy doing? Uh, well, did you see that home run in that game last night? No. Um, because I was, you know, doing something, ordering parts or doing employee reviews or, or, or doing something. And, and that's not to say that I don't, I mean, i don't make me out as a workaholic. I mean, I, I have a lot of leisure time, but you know, you can get a lot more efficient about what you do in your life too. I remember a few years ago, I was watching, listening to morning TV and the, uh, they were joking around laughing with the uh, weather person because they were making fun of her workout routine because while she's brushing her teeth, she's doing squats. And I thought, you know, that is maximizing your time. 
You know, if yeah. you're short on time, you know, you're not going to get a huge workout in, but rather than just stand there brushing your teeth, you know, you know, do 20 squats. You know, there's an awful lot we can do to be a lot more efficient with our life. You know, you're, you're taking your kids somewhere, you're waiting for them five minutes to come out of the gym after practice. And, you know, most of us pick up our phones and do the Facebook thing or whatever, but you know, maybe you need to pick up a real book. Uh, and, and read something that will benefit you, you know, read, some, read an article on, on, uh, on lending or read an article on, you know, uh, revenue creation, uh, you know, something that's going to really help your life. Um, that's a lot of it is just, you know, trying to be a little more focused on, on doing the extra things and squeezing them in when you can. And, and uh, it is extra work, but it, it, it's not near as overwhelming as it sounds when you spell it out. Well, I think a lot of it also has to do with that we have, like you, you've hinted at, is we have a lot more time than we think we do, you know, and even people who work a 40 hour week, I mean, anybody who's worked in an office, I would say, I'd venture to say the numbers, at least 50% that your, your 40 hours are not completely devoted to work, <laughs> you know, unless, I mean, I, when I was a bartender, I will say when I was a bartender, my 40 hours was completely devoted to to work, you know, I mean, there's certainly people in the service industry, but if you're working in an office in front of a computer, it's amazing the amount of time that, you know, if you sit there and really break it down, how much, you know, you're really, really working. And, you know, and that's not to say I'm not, I'm not knocking somebody for, for not being productive at work. It's just the nature of kind of the way that our society has sort of developed into office work is that you're expected to be there. You got to be there, whether there's work to do or not. The bad parts of about it is there you're, you got to set amount of, of, of money that they're going to pay you for that. Um, and whether you work harder or not, you're going to not going to make more money, but you also don't have the freedom to go somewhere, you know, when you want to. So mm -hmm. what you're talking about, a lot of that is that one, you, you're now, you, you've got the freedom to do what you want when you want to do it. And probably when you're working, you're actually generating more money. The harder you work, the more money you make as a business yeah. owner. And I think that's what a lot of people maybe don't necessarily realize that they're working towards. There's going to, you're going to work harder as a business owner or even a real estate investor, but the work, the work is going to be when you want to do it. And when you do it, you're going to actually be generating money. Uh, and oftentimes you're going to be generating a much larger outsized amount of money than you would if you were a wage slave or a salary man. Very, very true. And, and that gets back, you know, and, and to, to piggyback onto that, a lot of times people look at businesses and they, they go, Oh, well, that's a business I want to get into. And well, is it really a business you want to get into or is it just another job, but you have to buy something in order to have that job? You know, if, if you buy a car lot, you know, that you have to go work at every day, all you did was buy yourself a job and, and yeah, okay, you own it and everything, but, but it's still just a job that you bought uh, as opposed to, you know, what I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do uh, now after a lot of years of, of doing the other. One of the, one of the quotes that's meant a lot to me in my life, um, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and I'm not, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it's, you know, once you eliminate the impossible, anything else is possible. And, you know, I ran my first storage facility for 15 years with an answering machine. People would call that number and it would go to an answering machine. 
And I had an alarm at the office so that at 10 o'clock every morning, I would call that answering machine, get the messages, and I'd call those people back. And then when I quit for lunch, I'd call that answering machine. I'd get those messages. I called back. Same thing mid-afternoon, same thing you know, at the end of the day. So when I'm driving home from, from my work at, at the insurance office, I'm calling storage clients. And you know, is that optimum? No, but it's making it work. It's being productive. And, uh, you know, I get people that talk to me about investing and, and, uh, you know, they, they have such limiting, you know, such a, a limited mindset, you know, they're like, well, I'm, I want to invest in storage, uh, but I need to have a place within three miles of my house and it needs to be at 90% occupancy with really low rates. And the, and I got to be able to buy it at, you know, 10% under the market and the owner's going to carry 30% of it. And yeah, okay. Maybe it's out there, Yeah, but you know, you, you need to be realistic and, and realize that, you know, anything in this world is possible and you can buy a facility halfway across the country and run it from, from wherever you are. Uh, it's possible. And uh, you know, the, you need to broaden your scope. If, if you want to invest and you want to get into, into businesses and, and do storage or residential rental or wherever, you know, really look at your criteria and make sure that they're really criteria that are important and not just your comfort zone. Because if you're trying to find an investment that fits into your comfort zone, it probably needs to be a Dunkin' Donuts franchise or something that, that really fits all of our comfort zones because it's just, it's hard to find something that fits all those traditional criteria. Uh, you, know, you got to give on something. Well, Gary Edmonds, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Uh, you've got the um, you've got the storage manager. How is there a website for the storage manager? It is thestoragemanager.org. And that'll tell you a little bit about what we are. And, and then there's a couple of case studies up from different facilities that we've we've run that way and uh, tells you a lot about who we are and what we do and check it out. Okay. And is that the best way for somebody to reach out to you if they want to talk, find out more about you? That uh, my email is is Gary at getstoragehere.com. That's a great way to to reach out to me and and uh, I love talking to people about storage. Shoot, I love talking to everybody. Neil, you, you know it's it's kind of what we do. It's the old insurance salesman, I guess. But uh, yeah, if anybody's got questions or wants to reach out, uh, holler at me. I'll be happy to help anybody along their journey. If I can help in any way, I will. All right. Thanks again, Gary. You have a great day. You too, Neil. Thank you very much. Okay, that was Gary Edmonds with thestoragemanager.org. If you have any questions about storage, I highly recommend that you talk to a man who has owned 15 facilities uh, over the last 19 or so years. Gary is a wealth of knowledge. We could probably have sat and talked for another three or four hours, and we may have him back on the show and ask him more questions. Uh, But I highly recommend you reach out to him. Uh, And his email, we'll put all this in the show notes as well. His email is gary at getstoragehere.com. And feel free to reach out to him if you have any questions. So the key lesson learned for me on this episode was that as an entrepreneur, you need to remember there's a mind shift that needs to happen around the 40 hour work week. And that is that one, you are going to have more freedom. Um, You are not going to be tied down to someone else telling you what to do and when to do it. But there is going to be sacrifice. There's going to be a lot more work involved in that. And it will probably not, be, it will probably be a lot more than 40 hours, but it will also be more rewarding. And that's something that I think we all need to, those of us striving to make it 
as entrepreneurs need to understand that. You will probably work harder, but there'll be a, a more direct correlation between the amount of work that you put in and the money that you will get out of that. And you will have control over when and where you make that money. And that's something I think people really need to uh, keep in mind. And that's also, as far as, you know, knowledge, that was something that Gary had to, that was something Gary had to learn as well when he became an entrepreneur in 1999. So we're going to put those both together. How much money did it take him to get started? Uh, he bought that first facility for $420,000 and he had to put 10% down of, in cash. And then he was able to use credit cards of 15% to make up uh, a total down payment of 25%. Like we said, there's probably not many banks that would allow you to do that these days, but you, there's always creative opportunities. All you have to do is ask. Uh, and so it took him about $42,000 cash to, uh, to acquire that first facility. How much time uh, does he spend on his real estate endeavors now? Uh, as I said, you know, this is a tough one to nail down with a lot of people. And he said some days, some weeks, it's 15 to 20. Uh, others, it's 40 to 60. And uh, it just it just depends. But again, his time is his. He decides when he's going to, to, to put that time in. Could they do this strategy from anywhere in the world? I would say, I would say probably yes. Uh, I mean, Gary is managing all these facilities remotely. Uh, he's got a facility down in Georgia now. Uh, he's starting to take on clients uh, as a manager with his his company, uh, which we'll put in the show notes. And he has a team of people um, to uh, to keep his business running. So uh, I would say yeah. Okay. Once again, that was Gary Edmonds from the storagemanager.org. Feel free to reach out to him. We're doing this all again next week. Let's hit the road. Bye. Hey, before you go, if you like the show, we would be delighted if you'd head over to Podchaser and leave us an honest review. And do let us know why you like the show, how long you've been listening, and in particular, what you find really useful or entertaining. And let us know if there's anything you think we should change. Also, if you have specific questions about real estate investing, especially self-storage or short-term rentals, shoot us an email at info at roadtofamilyfreedom.com and we'll be happy to answer your question on the show. We might even turn it into an entire episode. Thanks for listening. We're doing this all again next week. Until then, safe travels on your road to financial freedom.